May all our days bring glory to your name. You are the rock and the redeemer of your blessed church, and we are your church, and you are our God. We ask you to be with us as we worship you this morning by proclaiming and expositing the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will get back to our series on Romans. We will get back to the Thursday evening Bible studies at our house. You needn't worry about that. They've gone on for 27 years. We will continue that great tradition. I have some ideas. We had some requests on what to discuss in that uh, Thursday evening session. And so um, we're considering all those things. But for now, I'm going to ask you to open to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. The Gospel of Matthew this morning. Chapter 15, I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 14 this morning. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He also answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then we need not honor his father, he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. His disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But Jesus answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch." Our Father, we ask that we, you add your presence by the Holy Spirit to this, the reading and proclamation of your holy word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the Lord said, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. The Lord doesn't hate traditions. He just likes them to stay in their proper place. Hypocrites, he called them. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So this serve, uh, sermon, rather, this morning, will serve as my first Christmas time message of the year. And I go here because these words of Jesus speak to us in times, the times in which we live. So I want to look into his words and unlock, if we can, some of the pertinent themes for our day and for our lives. Now, why did I go here this morning? Well, there's a number of themes here to consider. Number one, the first, it seems, God does issue commandments. 
Jesus does issue commandments, and he respects old, ancient commandments, specifically the Ten Commandments. There are several occasions in the Gospel Chronicles where people come to Jesus and ask him how they can inherit eternal life. Uh, the rich young ruler comes to mind. You're familiar with him. How shall, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus talks about righteousness. He says, well, follow the commandments, and he names a few of them. Honor your mother and father. Don't commit adultery. You shall not murder, Right? He names a few of them, representative list of the Ten Commandments, the so-called moral law of God, which is binding upon men for all eternity. And the rich young ruler is very happy because he knows he's followed those all his life. So you might be wondering, why didn't Jesus speak to him about faith? Well, he didn't ask the question about faith. He asked the question about righteousness. So if you were to ask me, if I completely keep all the commandments of God, will I go to heaven? My answer would be yes. But if you said, has, if you asked me, has anyone ever done it? I would say only one man has ever done it, and the Lord Jesus Christ has done it. And you're not equipped to do it. And so he sent the man away sorrowful. On another occasion, someone came and said, what's the first and greatest commandment? And again, he went to the Ten Commandments, and he summarized the two tables of the law. He said, well, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you go back to the Ten Commandments, I think you'll find it. that's a perfect summary of the first table of the law, which are, which are our responsibilities toward God. In the second table, our responsibilities toward one another. You have the first four on, on this side and the last six on this side. Jesus very often goes back to the commandments. You have made the commandment of God of no effect. Jesus respects commandment. Jesus issues commandments. And so do we. So first is the issue of commandments. If we're his disciples, we recognize that it's his to command and it's ours to obey. When obedience to God involves, or rather evolves into a tradition, it's a good thing so long as the participants remain sincere in the practice of their religion. The tradition has to support religion, not take away from it. I should see every head nodding in agreement, and a couple of amens ought to be rising up right about now. But there's a second thing to consider here. When men, um, and in this case it's the religious leaders of the day, cleverly insert a tradition for purposes of circumventing the commandment for their own convenience, that is offensive to God. Now you heard the reading. It's plainly shown here that our Lord is offended with the emphasis that the Pharisees put on man-made traditions above God-ordained commandments, hence the words of Jesus. You have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, and later he tells them, and you have taught men these things. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive a stricter judgment. It's one thing to commit sin, it's another thing to teach people that committing the sin you committed is actually honoring God. It's an abomination before God. Thirdly, the Pharisees are not contending that Jesus is breaking a commandment. Did you notice that? They didn't accuse him of breaking a commandment. They said he broke a tradition. And so they vent their outrage against the Lord for not honoring their tradition, even though they have not honored his commandment. And he turns the table on them and explains this as I'm explaining it this morning. 
Friends, they had a tradition. It might have even been an old tradition. It could have been hundreds of years old. The Pharisees at this time were already hundreds of years old. You'll notice in the Old Testament there are no Pharisees. They came about in the intertestamental period with the Hasmonean dynasty, the so-called Maccabees, if you know anything about the, um, the books of the Maccabees and the Apocrypha stories. Um, so it could have been maybe 100, 150 years old, their tradition. But friends, oldness does not mean rightness necessarily, and that goes for old people as well. All right? But antiquity... Friends, does not necessarily promote sanctity. Pagan religion and customs are very, very old. I was at Stonehenge a couple of years ago. You know, nobody knows how that thing got put together, but it's, it's a pagan ritual sacrifice site. Um, it was there in the Roman times, but the Romans discovered it was long before them that the um, Druid priests came and uh, conducted their pagan worship there, knowing nothing of Christ. Right, Very old tradition. Didn't sanctify it, though. Antiquity doesn't promote sanctity. Pagan religions and customs are old. They can even be very, very old, as I've pointed out. But they remain offensive to God. Pagan customs, pagan sacrifices, pagan gods, which are not gods at all, do not gain in sanctity as the centuries tick by. If you can just get your tradition to last a while, that won't make it a good or right tradition. So they remain offensive to God and should remain anathema to the people of God. In other words, we should not look highly upon them at all. We should strike them from our (coughs) worship practices. It may be presumed from other passages that there are good traditions and bad traditions. I have family traditions. I We all have certain traditions. We have traditions here at the church that we brought up, and I'm always very careful to make sure those traditions don't conflict with the commandments of God or the traditions that God has uh, ordained for us. So the tradition from the passage here is of concern to the Pharisees. It's ritual washing of hands before eating. Now, we all know that's a good idea, Um, God didn't give commandments just because they're a good idea. He gave commandments because he's comfortable with authority. His authority is legitimate and it's real. And so he tells us what to do for our own good. And if, he's, and if we're very obedient to him, someday down the way, he might tell us why he told us to do these things. He might not. God keeps some things to himself, but what he wants us to know, he had it written down. But insofar as this washing of the hands, keep in mind that this washing referred to is not for actual cleansing. It's a ritual cleansing. Jesus said elsewhere to these same religious leaders, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He loves to use the word hypocrite. In fact, he popularized it. It wasn't used in this way until Jesus started saying it. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish But inside, they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Something tells me that Jesus isn't talking about cups and dishes when he says that. You are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Not a politically correct savior, is he? The incident from our passage today happened on the plains of Gennesaret, which is between the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. If you look on 
the 67th uh, book of the Bible, the book of maps, you'll see that. There would be no way for a person to effectively wash before eating in a wilderness such as this one. And if you're careful in your reading, you noticed they came all the way from Jerusalem to harass the Lord and the disciples on that day over silly things and insignificant traditions. But that's not the issue for the Pharisees. The issue is that they would like to defame the Lord by pointing out that by his example, he defies their authority. A fourth point, Jesus didn't defend the practice of not washing. He didn't even speak about it again. Rather, he points to what he considers a far more consequential matter. When the, where the Pharisees are concerned with man-made rituals concerning eating, Jesus points rather to the God-ordained practices concerning worship. Worship is important to God. It comes with rules and regulations and requirements and restrictions and limitations. We don't just do anything we want and expect God to receive it. And if you don't believe me, there's a number of people in the scriptures who you could ask. You could ask Cain. Very famously, the first conflict in human history, Cain brought a sacrifice to the Lord, and he didn't like it. The Lord didn't like it. He sent him away, sadly. But his brothers, he liked. God wasn't one of those fathers that says, you know, i got to treat all the children equally so they won't fight. No, he said, this is what I want. This is right. This is wrong. You can't worship me this way. You have to worship me this way. If you don't believe Cain, you can ask Nadab and Abihu. Remember them? I think it's Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron. They were Moses' nephews. And they were zapped out of existence by bringing strange offerings, strange fire to the worship of the Lord. Remember Uzzah, the servant of David? They were transporting the ark. They had it on a couple of cows. You don't transport. Anyone that's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark knows that somehow that's just not the way it's done. And the thing started toppling. And Uzzah went up and touched it, but he was not a consecrated priest, and he was zapped out of existence, and David got mad at God over it. There are certain things that we can't offer to God. He doesn't accept them. It's called the regulative principle. He doesn't just accept everything because it's our good intentions to give it to him. That's not the big consideration. The big consideration that he would have us, as we saw from Romans 12, he would have us come before him intelligently and knowledgeable of his will. Remember those last two weeks we spoke about that. And so from the verse we have before us, we can readily surmise that there are at least two forms of worship, friends. There's sincere and heartfelt worship that's done in a manner pleasing to God, and there are vain and insincere worship practices. There's two types. There's those that are sincere and he accepts and those that are insincere and not according to his word. Um, So empty ritual contributes to the insincere variety and the heeding of divine commandment promotes sincere worship. So worship begins with commandment, right? We've seen in recent weeks from Romans 12, as I mentioned, that the Lord expects us to be physically present as well as spiritually engaged as well as intellectually informed. We know what we worship, he said. He said to the Samaritan woman, you don't know what you worship. We worship knowledgeably. So the, the, the commandment the Lord refers to is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fifth. It's honor your father and your mother. And clearly the Lord presumes that the force of, of the commandment includes the financial support of elderly parents by their children. But the Pharisees have cleverly 
used a religious ruse, I call it, to circumvent the support of their parents. They said, yes, we know that the commandment requires that, but what we're going to do is just pronounce a little uh, blessing upon our money, and we're going to offer it to God, and therefore we cut out the middleman. That's all they had to do. They had a little ritual. So the Pharisees used this ruse to circumvent the support of parents, and all they had to do was proclaim that their money is a gift to God. Mark called it Corbin, if you remember that term. And so no one commentator, or rather one commentator says of this, that they made a pious route or a religious route to break the law of God. They pretended religion was more acceptable to God than obedience to commandment. Now, isn't it a wonderful thing, and I say this sarcastically, that we're so ingenious that we make ways to proudly disobey God by claiming to adhere to a higher standard than he does? Well, God would have dirty worship as the Pharisees want them to wash. What Jesus was concerned about is inward purity, not the outward showy variety. If you know anything about the Lord and the Gospels, you have to pick up that. Um, And just so we're clear, Jesus could have pointed to any of the Ten Commandments and exposed the wily ways of the Pharisees to redirect them for their own convenience and power and prestige, hence the word hypocrites. This is one of the Lord's favorite words to describe false teachers and false worshipers. A hypocrite is an actor in a play, or it was that until Jesus used it this way. He accused the Pharisees of just pretending to be something like actors, pretend to be something. And so to claim that someone is a hypocrite is to say that they're simply prompted in all they do by making an outward show and taking their cues from a cleverly designed script. Everything they did was scripted, you see. So what we're seeing here is an example where man-made traditions intersected with divinely appointed traditions. In fact, it's even more grave a situation than that. It's not a contest between God's traditions and man's traditions. It's a contest between God's commandments and man's traditions. It's the commandment, Jesus said, that's been rendered of no effect by human tradition. It's precisely this relationship between divine commandment and earthly traditions that can separate us from God. And it can do it while we think we're not separated. False security is worse than no security at all. It's like a bad diagnosis when you're sick. The, the false diagnosis can't help you, right? It will, it will offer wrong treatment. I think we can all hear and feel the tension between the Lord and the Pharisees. There are many such passages, but this one speaks to the particular quandary we find ourselves in at the present moment, the present moment of church history. I love to look into the events of church history and as they intersect with each other and as they each inform the other. And we're in, a, we're in the late, later stages of Christian history now. We have to look at our lives as just part of Christian history on down through the ages, right? So let's study it. Even this very week of church history, and I believe I'd be remiss if I did not address the problem leading up to the Christmas holiday. Now, I got to tell you, I picked up the latest issue of World Magazine the other day. And I love World Magazine. I know some of you read it. We talk about it. And it was all about the true meaning of Christmas, as told us by Linus in the Peanuts cartoons. Right? You remember when you were a child? First time you heard that? Um, 
It was remiss, however, to ever get to the real point. There's a long article, and there's this really long article about the Peanuts cartoon. They spent more on that than they've spent on the war in Afghanistan and, you know, down all the uh, things that came up in the last few years that were important matters. This is a really long article. They spent more on this than they did when uh, the Supreme Court overthrew Roe v. Wade. But... Um, there's this long article about the wonderful explanation that Linus gives to the other Peanuts characters. Linus famously quotes from Luke chapter 2 on the nativity of Christ in Bethlehem. And it was a great moment in history that popular culture actually expressed the gospel into so many millions of homes. Now, Linus's explanation was heartwarming to every Christian heart who heard it especially in their childhood. I remember hearing it in my childhood. Charlie Brown was exasperated by all the commercialism of the day, remember? He wanted to know the true meaning. So I don't want to diminish the importance of a public proclamation of Scripture into popular culture. However, a few things were missing from the so-called Christmas story. It seems Linus is a good friend. He's a wonderful encourager. He might even be a good Christian, but he's, less, he's a less than effective expositor of God's word. You see, what's conspicuous, conspicuously absent from the story of the so-called true meaning of Christmas is any reference to Christmas at all. Luke makes no mention of it when he's reading from Luke chapter 2. I read it to you this morning. In fact, the word's not mentioned in any biblical context from Genesis to, to Revelation. Conspicuously absent from two of the gospel accounts. Mark and John don't even deal with the nativity or the birth. You know, Jews were very famous for not celebrating birthdays. That's why when Herod um, beheaded John the Baptist, it was at his birthday. That's something that evil men did. I think it was uh, the second century theologian Origen who said only sinners like Herod and Pharaoh celebrate the day they came into the world. You can be sure at Herod's party there were no practicing Jews. So Mark and John don't even deal with the birth. I'm glad we know of it from the other two evangelists, aren't you? So whatever conclusion we may want to reach with regard to the meaning of Christmas, it's certainly not a thing that can be found in the Word of God. We have to go elsewhere to find out where this phenomenon arises. Observance of Christmas remains a human tradition only. Now I've told you it's a Christian holiday, and that's fine, but it's not a biblical holiday. You know, you had Passover, Pentecost, right? And you had the Lord's Day. Christmas never rises to the level of commandment. So needless to say, Christmas is not a God-ordained holy day or a day of obligation. Christmas is a man-made tradition. In the opinion of most of the reform movements of our day, not of latter times, which I'll talk about, um, of most reform literature and preaching, Christmas is a wonderful tradition. I have a wonderful book about Christmas from James Montgomery Boyce, who's very happy to give several sermons of his in one uh, book that I sometimes use to inform my Christmas sermons. I may do that next week. And so for most of us, most of us have concluded that celebrating the Lord's birth, giving it a name, is a good thing. And so we too celebrated, as we did Friday evening. Now, those of you who've known me over the years know that I remain skeptical. I'm a skeptical guy. I could even be called a cynical guy at times. I just don't trust people to tell me things. 
I'm thinking media in particular. So I remain skeptical of the power of traditions and the power they have over the hearts and intentions of people. I remember when Christian preachers preached against Santa Claus. Is anyone old enough to remember when Santa Claus was the big enemy of Christmas in the Christian churches? Now, why was that? What was the issue? Well, it was that attributes that pertain only to God were bestowed upon Santa. Not Jesus, but Santa knows if you're naughty or nice. Right? Anyone ever really get coal? You got coal? Your parents, Ricky, you had to... Oh, from her kids. oh! <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's from her. <laughs> Something told me, don't ask that question. But I remember when Christian preachers preached and railed against Santa. You can have a Christmas party, but no Santa. Now, I homeschooled my kids to keep them away from a lot of emphases in the world, but I fully intended always to teach my kids about the things I didn't want them to learn from other people. But I wanted them to know. I wanted them to know about evolution. I don't believe in it, but I wanted them to know people do. I didn't want them to come out and be all surprised. I remember one time when the kids were little, the kid next door, uh, and they were, having a, they were having an argument about religion. They were little, real little. And the kid next door, Everett, said to, uh, uh, I think it was James, I think it was James, he said, we don't believe in God. And James said, you have to. <laughs> <laughs> they had to in our house <laughs> you can't make them believe in God but you have to require that they believe in God you know why? God requires it you know when you come down to it there's really no such thing as a gospel invitation it's a gospel commandment to receive him keep that in mind but I remain skeptical about these things and the way they can affect us he knows if you're naughty or nice. That's an attribute of Christ. He can visit every child in a single night, Santa can. He sneaks into home unawares, leaves gifts, blessings of every sort. He flies through the night sky, etc. He does all these divine things. So it was a big problem. Now, I'm not fearful. I taught my children about Santa. They know about clemency, Moors the night before Christmas, right? They know all those things. I watched the Grinch. We played the Grinch song the other night just to have fun with it. All right? I want them to know that Santa is in his lane. He's folklore, and Jesus is historical and theological reality. It's a difference. Now, it seems in the so-called secular war against Christmas that Christians have found themselves in the precarious place of being defenders of Santa as a Christian symbol. Now, if you watch Fox News, they love Santa on that channel. Friends, look to another of the great commandments of God, the second one. Thou shalt not make idols. Christianity should make us wary of symbols in general. The commandment from Exodus 20 speaks of graven images of things in heaven and earth as objects of worship or reverence. Friends, symbols in general we ought to be careful about. It's one thing to have, you know, a, a symbol of something like a Santa Claus, but to say that he's something else, to say that he's something higher than he is, something divine, something we should believe in. Is, it, is when we get into the danger category. There was a concern in those days about children believing in the Santa myth only to experience the inevitable moment of reality setting in at age 8 or 9 or 10 when they have to find out he's not real. And there was always that one kid who knew first, and he told the other kids. Now, if he was 8, 
and the kid that he was telling Santa wasn't real was 10. There was always, you still believe in Santa? You know, it was always that sort of self-righteousness that he'd already come of age and realized that was a child's fairy tale. All right? But the churches were mad about that in those days. And if Santa's not real, if Santa doesn't really receive our petitions, if Santa doesn't really have the ability to bless us with the things we ask for, then what about Jesus? Is he a myth as well? You see the danger they were stepping into. I think the churches were rightly wary of how they handled the Santa thing and other secular things. And so the churches were careful about how they presented Christmas. I have some, I got to tell you, I have idyllic childhood memories about Christmas. My parents were real good about that stuff. We had the tree, the decorations, the same ones every year, our favorite ones we'd put on. We'd do it together. My father built our house. He was a builder in those days. We had a beautiful brick hearth with a long um, mahogany mantle going all the way across the room. We actually, he actually had hooks where you could hang the stockings. We had our names on the stockings, and Santa and the reindeer were on the stockings. And they were filled with all kinds of great things, Christmas morning. We had all of those things. I have idyllic memories of Christmas. What I don't have is any idyllic memories of Christianity. There was no Christianity in my family at all. Now, we grew up Catholic, so there was a nominal understanding of some of these things. But I had wonderful Christmases and memories of that, but I have no memories of anybody exalting Jesus Christ, never at any of our family meetings. Donnie and I were talking the other day. We both, both grew up in, in Brockton, and we're both Italian. And they had in those days what was called the Sons of Italy. And I was saying, Donnie, the other day, when you were little, did you go to the Sons of Italy? Oh, it was wonderful at Christmas time. They had this big screen up in the reel-to-reel projector with all these cartoons that I remember. We couldn't see those cartoons anywhere else except on the Sons of Italy. I don't know where they got these things. But, and they gave us these little netted stockings full of all stuff. We sang all the Christmas songs. No one got up and talked about Jesus. No one professed anything about Christ. This was simply ritual. You might say empty ritual. You might say not empty, just fun. And we all had such a good time with it. And, and you know, I didn't meet Donnie till high school, so somehow we were both there with our parents, but we didn't know each other. Did you know my grandfather was the president of the Sons of Italy Club until he died? But um, friends, Linus, if he knew, might have told Charlie Brown that Christmas was always commercial business. It was always a secular thing. People that celebrated it had no understanding of Jesus Christ. I know my parents didn't. Right? I know my aunts and uncles didn't. To this day, I suppose none of them really do. I'm glad it contributes to the nation's GDP. I'm glad that it helps our economy. But it's always been a far more secular than religious thing. Look at the great Christmas movies. Now, I love some of these movies. It's a Wonderful Life. You know, that's only a Christmas movie because they decided to have it in the winter. They, had, they placed it in the winter at Christmas time. That's the only reason it's a Christmas movie. But it's about, you know, angels getting their wings. It's not really the nativity story. So it's a wonderful life. Miracle on 34th Street is all about Santa Claus and the court. It goes to court to prove that he's, that he's um, a myth, and instead they prove that he's real. Great movie. Then there's Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Now, has anyone seen, there's a movie out. It's called The Man Who Invented Christmas. Has anyone seen this movie? It's about Charles Dickens. 
And he's a young Dickens, and, he's, and he needs money, and he decides to write this story, and it's based on certain things that happen in his life. It's kind of an interesting movie. I don't know how much of it is, is real history. But he, you know, in those days, you would, when you were a writer, you wrote, and they would publish sections of it in the newspaper. And uh, the story made him rich. It's a wonderful story. Friends, Christ and God are not mentioned in it at all. I remember reading, the last time I read it, I've seen all the various movies, the last time I read it had to be high school, I think. And um, there's just no mention of Christ. It's a totally secular thing. It's all about what the so-called social gospel. Mr. Scrooge is mean and nasty, has a lot of money, won't share it, and if he shares it, he'll be good. And that's the gospel of a Christmas carol. Have I ruined it for anybody yet? That's all right, don't worry, I have more. And so... There's a Christmas Carol, there's a Wonderful Life, there's Miracle on 34th Street, there's Rudolph. Rudolph was invented by a country singer named Gene Autry two years before I was born. You know Gene Autry, the singing cowboy? He's in movies, he's got his guitar, he's on the horse. They never really shoot anybody, they shoot the guns out of his hand and stuff. There was Frosty the Snowman, that's not a Christmas movie. How was that a Christmas movie? That's a winter movie. Um, there's the Santa Claus. Um, and then there's my favorite, and this is where I get really um, cynical, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I need counseling, but White Christmas is my favorite. Have you ever seen that stupid, silly movie? Karen and I watch movies that we hate, where the acting and the writing is so bad that we, it, we enjoy the laughter of laughing at it. At the end, Bing Crosby sings White Christmas with this silly, bushy, white Santa hat on, you know, if people are shaking their heads, you know, like, look how stupid he looks. Couldn't they show more of the red part of the hat? He looks like a woman with a little bun, you know. It's so ridiculous, this movie. Now, I love Danny Kaye, so we watch it and we laugh. I, we haven't seen it in a few years. Not one mention of, of Christ. This is a secular holiday, friends. And for most of our existence, that's what it's been. Christians want to take it up and make it something else. And um, for that, um, I'm glad. I like that it promoted uh, a popular rendering of the Christmas story to as many millions of homes as it did. But we live in a moment where otherwise serious-minded churches and pastors of churches are suspending the commandment of God for the sake of the tradition of men. And why? Because Christmas falls on Sunday this year. And there are local churches within a stone's throw of us who have canceled the service that God ordains in the fourth commandment so that they can lavish silly plastic gifts upon their children that they're going to hate in a couple of weeks anyway. I always did. I always got just what I wanted and forgot about it a week later. Maybe I'm just venting my childhood rage this morning. But friends, this is a no-brainer for us. The Lord's Day is a real biblical observance. It's a commandment of God. Keeping it is required. Christmas is merely a fun take on some external observances that have evolved from some very spurious sources, however. Christmas has become so big in the Christian conscience that the tradition may actually replace the commandment, and we're seeing it done. This is why I do this. I always said I, I wouldn't do this in the Christmas season, but I feel I have to this year. It's a travesty what's happened. It's the most visible apostasy of our times. Friends, it's the definition of idolatry to take a thing that is nothing and say that it's not only something, but it's the supreme thing. 
Now, vain worshipers have already made occasions to be absent from Sunday worship. Studies have shown that there are already nine reasons contributing to low church attendance. Let's go through them. Number one, spring break. I never knew that, but I guess some of the big churches, a lot of teenagers, they go to spring break. That's a horrific thing. Never send a Christian child to spring break, not the kind that's in uh, Florida. Seems the Lord dealt with that for a while with the last hurricane. I don't think Fort Myers is going to be as, as hospitable a place right now. Number two, holiday weekends. Hey, we got, we got uh, Monday off. Let's um, stay up late Saturday and Sunday. And I, I don't know why, but for some reason, holiday weekends. Number three, bad weather. This is funny. Number four, good weather. <laughs> Number five, sporting events, right? Number six, summer. Friends, Karen and I know a local church that takes the summer off. Number seven, time change, and of course that's twice a year. I don't know why, I guess they just get up in the morning and say, oops, wrong time. And number eight, pastor's vacation, cat's away mentality. And number nine, the week between Christmas and New Year. In other words, we're so caught up in our holidays, in the middle of there's a Sabbath, oh, just, it's holiday week. But this new reason to replace the commandment with tradition goes much deeper into the Christian ranks. Churches are canceling services for the day in deference to families who would rather indulge their children with superfluous gifts and silly fantasies. Now, I can already hear the protest, but pastor, what about evangelism? Don't, don't, doesn't the world come in contact with Jesus during Christmas? Well, maybe, but I just pointed out to you, not through movies, not through um, cartoons. You know, I had a a friend who told me one day, he said, I'm, I'm evangelizing my friend so I won't be in church this Sunday. And I said, what will you be doing? He said, well, we're going to the Patriots game. I'm going with him. I, I, I want to be a Christian witness to him. I said, is he ever going to find out that Christians have some responsibilities? Is there supposed to be no culture shock at all when someone comes in and finds out that we're not singing Lady Gaga tunes? I mean, is there supposed to be any culture shock at all when you become a Christian? Is there any change required? Are we afraid they'll go away if we tell them the real truth? We're always trying. If we think evangelism is sort of sneaking them in under the door. Don't really tell them they're going to hell without our message. Isn't a Christmas a good tool to reach the word for God? I would say this with regard to evangelism, friends. The Lord's Day when all God's people suspend the daily routine of the other six days and devote that one day to worship of the one true God in spirit and truth is the greatest evangelical tool of all. Let the world see that as they go secular, we still all come out in droves and we go to churches on Sunday and we fill parking lots. You know, I lived in Westchester County when I was... Courting Karen. She was from Long Island. And I went down there, and Westchester County is very, very Jewish. Big Hasidic Jewish population. In fact, it's so big that everything closes down Friday night in the, in the towns. Everything closes down. Streets close down. Nobody drives. And the Jews come out at dusk with their pelt hats, you know, those big fur hats, and the derbies that they wear and all the things and they walk to synagogue because they're not allowed to drive now you can say whatever you want about this but that is a witness of what they believe and I got to tell you I was cynical in those days about such things I was not a believer but I was so impressed at how devout their whole community was so what about evangelism let the world know that you and your children worship God 
come hell or high water, we worship God. Because if we don't take God seriously with regard to worship, who will? Who will? If we of all people make the commandment of God of no effect by our tradition, then well did Isaiah prophesy of us, saying, They draw near to me with their mouth, honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. Don't let them say that of us. Now, I know I can be accused and have been of lacking Christmas spirit, but I'm really not too concerned. I'm only concerned about lacking the Holy Spirit, and that's what Christians ought to be concerned about. Believers became so concerned, so obsessed with keeping Christ in Christmas, they failed to keep Christ in Christianity. A little history, friends, that should unravel some of the debate over the subject. Let me just point out that Christianity endured. It progressed It flourished for centuries before the church ever heard of Christmas, before anyone ever heard of it, because it wasn't there. They were being persecuted. Their property was being taken. They were being rounded up like thieves and criminals. They were being killed for the sport of unbelievers and pagans. And still, the message of God flourished, because the first great Christian emperor of the Roman Empire made a self-serving political decision Christmas came into being. Now, you may know the story of Constantine the Great. He was great. He was a great Roman emperor. He came into power about 302 or 303 AD. And he was a great conqueror like his father, Constantius, before him. And he went out one day and battled, and he looked into the sky. This is the story he told. You can make of it what you will. Some like it, some don't. He looked into the sky, and he saw the chi and the rho, the two Greek letters that begin the word Christ. And he said he saw that in the sky, and then a voice said to him, conquer under this sign. Now, you may see some of the denominations today use the chi. It's like an X, and the rho is the the Greek R. It looks like RP, right? You may have seen that on flags and things. That goes back to the 4th century, where Constantine said God told him to conquer under that sign. He became a great conqueror. He, in fact, pulled the Roman Empire together and started the Byzantine Empire on the, uh, um, uh, in the uh, Asia Minor continent where Turkey is, right? That became Byzantium. Constantinople then later uh, was first Byzantium, then became Constantinople. Became the great eastern leg of the empire. He was indeed a great man. He brought together all the Christian bishops of his time, and he had in 325 AD what was called the... Um, the uh, Ecumenical Council in Nicaea. We still have the Nicene Creed today. Brought them all together so that they could decide what was the doctrine of Jesus Christ. Was he really God? Or was he just a product of God? And they came, and that's when the deity of Christ, when all the emperors, of the, all the bishops of the empire came together and decided that matter based on Scripture. He signed what was called the Edict of Milan in three. 12 or 13 AD, which gave Christians back all their property that for centuries had been taken away from them. And he declared it, he declared Christianity the religion of the state. So in some ways, he helped Christianity. Well, he helped Christians. In other ways, not so much. The emperor's example that he was a Christian made it fashionable to profess profess Christ. All of a sudden, people would just do it. And so many did. Now, what these nominal believers did not realize was that professing Christ could come with some new moral standards. And who likes that? So you see, there was this very popular pagan festival of 
of that time during the month of December that the emperor was not ready to declare anathema to his new god. They had a seven-day festival to their god of agriculture, Saturn, like the planet, right? The, god, the planet is named after the god. The god's not named after the planet. The festival went from December 17th to 23rd, and fearful of popular unrest, if the festival was taken away from them, the emperor decided to baptize the event and declare it a birthday celebration to the new Christian God. And that's how Christmas got its name and came into being. Despite the fact that the festival came with some very strange customs, Christians seemed to like it. Strange customs like, I don't know, burning a Yule log, kissing under the mistletoe, mass drunkenness, uh, decorating with wreaths and lavish gift-giving to one another. That's where all those things come from. Christians didn't do those things. Those were pagan elements. You understand? So if you think that such a move contributed to devotional, devotional Christianity, think again. All it did was add Jesus to their already overcrowded pantheon of idols and deities. He was just another of the many gods to them. Francis Schaeffer pointed out that the early Christians were not persecuted for worshiping Jesus. They were persecuted for worshiping Jesus alone. This new brand of believers would rather die than to pretend with their pagan neighbors and family members that there was any God but Jehovah. I must tell you that Christianity flourished in those first three centuries, even with all the pogroms and persecutions suffered by the saints at the hands of pagan princes and emperors. And one more point of historical interest. You know that despite some sad extravagances and notorious witch hunts of our colonial period, that the Puritan era in New England remains the most prolific experiment in promoting genuine devotion and solid theology in the general population. In all of history, the Puritan era, right here in New England, right here in Lakeville, they had come closest of any people or period in history to fulfilling John Winthrop's biblical vision of American exceptionalism and devotional purity known as a model of Christian charity, which is a great sermon he gave in Massachusetts way back in those early days. So what some commentators and theologians have called a golden age of Christianity was accomplished without so much as a nod to Christmas. In fact, friends, they outlawed it. They knew about its existence, they knew how it could creep in, and they outlawed it. It was a conglomeration of pagan practices that were made illegal in the colonies. It was not until 1856, with political pressure from a much wider and eclectic population, was was Christmas made legal in Massachusetts, a hundred years before I was born. So I'm just saying this to let you know. Christianity flourished. Evangelism flourished before this human tradition came into being. Let's recognize that. Christianity will do just fine if the secularists actually win the so-called war on Christmas. We won't perish. And U.S. Grant in 1870, after the Civil War, signed a proclamation making Christmas a national holiday, 1870. We have a long period before that, right? Now, whether or not we think that the prohibition of the holiday was the product of narrow-minded enthusiasts, which you can certainly make that claim, the fact remains that Christianity flourished among the masses apart from any observance of Christmas. We do not need superfluous celebrations to keep Christ real in our hearts 
and practice our religion. Friends, Christmas is a fine thing. And insofar as Christianity reformed it, it may even be a good thing. But like any man-made adaptation to religion, it must remain in its lane. Traditions have always been offensive to Christ when they interfered with the genuine devotion or right theology of the saints. I'll be here next week celebrating the Lord's Day with you. And one last point. I added this this morning. Seems to be some confusion among Christians regarding the Lord's Day responsibilities. It's sort of like they think it's optional. But I want you to know, people that think the Lord's Day worship practices of Christians are optional think the church is optional as well. If we have no requirement to be present for worship, what's required of us as Christians at all? Are we all free agents? Can Christianity even survive apart from the Lord's Day? The disciples met on the first day of the week for the first three consecutive Sundays at the end of John's Gospel. Jesus rose on the first day. They met the next first day of the week because they went into the synagogues on the seventh day and weren't welcomed anymore. So for fear of the Jews, he said, they met on the first of the week. And hence the Christian, the Chris, Christian Sabbath was born. The Apostle Paul told everyone, lay up your offerings for the first day of the week. John on Patmos in prison said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The concept of the Lord's Day was always already well entrenched in the Christian congregations of the first few weeks of Christianity in those first few years. All right? First day observances go back to the very beginning. They were sanctioned by origin in the first century, Irenaeus in the second. Sunday, or the venerable day of the sun on the Roman calendar, was commanded by Constantine as the day of Christian worship for the entire empire. It is the Christian Sabbath. It has been, it has been so since the beginning. A Father, in Jesus' name, let these words sink down into our hearts. Let us be nourished by them, O Lord. Let us worship you intelligently and with our whole hearts, being informed, for God is seeking such to worship him as worship in spirit and truth. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.